Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We are Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is the highlight show for January the 4th, the day that we talked to John Sepulveda from Oregon Public Broadcasting about this uh, standoff. These militiamen have occupied a national, uh, a federal building, rather, on the uh, uh, Malheur Wildlife Reserve. And it's kind of blown out of proportion a little bit. Sounds like it. We also uh, talked about hockey and the uh, World Junior Championships uh, that preempted us last week. Did not do so today because Canada fell short of reaching the semifinals. Scott Stinson from the National Post joined us for a conversation about where Canadian hockey is at and how much we should fret this early exit. You can listen to us weekday mornings, 930 to 1230 on News Talk 770. Hey, welcome back. I'm Roger. That's Rob. Uh, at 12 o'clock, we're going to have Scott Stinson on the program. Uh, sports writer, National Post, did a pretty good post-mortem on Canada's uh, trip to Helsinki. Uh, obviously not the result we were looking for, the defending champs out without a medal. But we will see uh, if Canada has a good opportunity to rebound at this particular event next next year. I guess I later it's this in, year. Uh, isn't it in Buffalo? I think it's in Buffalo. Is it Buffalo? The next one. Toronto, Montreal, I forget. After that, maybe? Yeah. Or maybe I got it mixed up. Maybe it's the other way around. But, but it'll be back in North America for the next couple of years. Yeah, which means our show won't be preempted. No, that's true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> Which hope. it would have been today. I, I'm not sure. I, I guess Canada would have been in the early game. Uh, would would they have played? Yeah, I guess they would have played Sweden in the early game. Finland, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Finland uh, beat Sweden this morning. Russia and the U.S. just getting set to play. Here. Yeah, we've got that uh, Cold War showdown on TV. We'll keep an eye on that one for you. So uh, maybe we'll pass on a score here from time to time. I'm setting the over-under on goals for the U.S. at six and a half. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, as you say, we're going to get to that at 12 o'clock. Coming up after 1130, we'll have some time for some uh, open phones. Uh, your phone calls, 974-8255. But we'll begin at the top of this hour with the situation unfolding in Oregon. The hashtag Oregon under attack was uh, trending on, on Twitter over the weekend. Um, I don't know. And is that an overstatement of what's going on here? Uh, there's a, a militia group, a self-proclaimed militia group that has taken over a federal building in, in Oregon. But it's not, as you say, some some government building in the middle of a city. Uh, this is a, an outpost in the middle of a, a national wildlife refuge. So they've uh, vowed that they're going to stay put. Uh, they they have some demands, we think, or they want their demands to be met, although uh, to me it's a little unclear what these demands are. Uh, ostensibly, this this is uh, in, in reaction to the sentences handed uh, to a couple of ranchers in, in Oregon who are accused of arson, accused of setting fires on, on federal land, and then maybe the way they were treated speaks to a heavy-handed uh, government and how they, they deal with uh, land issues and, and ranchers, but it, it, this seems to go beyond that to me. Yeah, it's it's a rather peculiar story, and I think it gets disjointed a little bit when you find out that the namesakes for the cause may not really want the cause to be happening in their name. Let's bring John Sepulveda into this uh, conversation, our weekend edition host at Oregon Public Broadcasting. John, uh, thanks for your time today. Welcome to the program. 
Anytime. Anytime. It's great to be talking to Calgary. Uh, well, cool. It's good to be talking to you, and maybe we'll have you back on if this thing develops down the road. We certainly hope it doesn't. But Yeah, I was going to say, I hope I never talk to you again about this. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, where, where does it start? Because it seems to me that the two guys, the, the, the father and son duo of ranchers, the Hammonds, they don't want any of this to be happening themselves. I think that's I think that's malarkey. I think they do want this to be happening. Okay. And the reason I say that is because um, publicly they've been very like, well, you know, this doesn't represent us in this. But I've spoken to um, uh, the Bundys, who are on the other side of this, which we'll talk about in a second, the other family involved here. And uh, they've been able to show me a lot of different communications and um, uh, things said back and forth between the two um, that – highlight that they actually involved the Bundys. They reached out to the Bundys at one point um, and asked for help. Um, so I think that they didn't want necessarily this type of attention, and I think there's a lot of pressure on them. It's my understanding um, that one of the fears is that the Hammonds, these, these, these ranchers, are concerned that the federal government might press down on them a little harder um, for, the, for being associated with the, the Bundys. Um, I haven't confirmed that with federal sources, but I do not think that the, the Hammonds are being forthright when they say, oh, we don't, we don't have anything to do with this. We don't know why they came here and all that. I, I think that's nonsense. Interesting. But they're, but they're at the center of this. And, and this involved, they, they, are the, right? they are at the center of this, yes. And, and they've, they've said that they're supposed to go to prison today, um, and they've said that they're going to go there voluntarily. Now, their case, now they, they were accused of setting fires on federal land, right? Mm-hmm. So the, yeah, these were true. arson counts originally that they were facing. It's my understanding, and I, I could. It's my understanding that they, I know for a fact they've been convicted on two. I believe there were there were some others that they were not convicted on. Okay. Do we know the nature of the fires they were setting? My understanding is it came at a time when uh, there were actually wildfires burning in uh, in this particular national national forest, Mallor National Forest. Right on 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 its face. On its face, it's very clear that um, you know it seems like a, like a really harsh sentence from from the federal government, um, and, and let me explain why. So, on its face, the the one charge that got them in a lot of trouble is they lit one fire, which the the Hammonds describe as a backfire. So these are these are large plains of grass, um, you know, uh, in the, in a desert area. There was a fire already happening. It was during a lightning storm. A lightning had um, lit this grass on fire, and they lit about an acre um, on fire. And they said they did it to protect their their um, their ranch. Um, and the, this, they say that the fire crossed over on uh, onto federal property. That's one of the fires they were convicted on. The other fire that they were convicted of, um, they sat in. They set in 2001. They, there's no disagreement that they set it. There's no disagreement that they set it on on federal land. Um, the question is intent. Um, where the the accusation was that the the Hammonds uh, set this fire to basically cover up evidence in a in a poaching uh, scheme. So on its face, to see five years for setting a fire, that might not seem like a big deal. The government came down very hard on them because the Hammonds, for a long time, especially Dwight Hammond, um, the, have has basically been threatening, you know, has called in death threats to, to various um, federal officers, uh, has acknowledged this, um, you know, has had a long standoff with the, the Bureau of Labor um, Pardon me, the Bureau of Land Management here in the U.S. And so there's been some really big tensions um, between the two. And on that fire, that one-acre fire that was done during a, a lightning storm, there were federal workers there. And the federal workers, these firefighters, said, do not light that fire. It could potentially tra- trap us. And the minute that they lit that fire, um, then all of a sudden it became grounds 
for uh, being, being sentenced under an anti-terrorism statute. And that's what's got everybody riled up because uh, now um, they will be going to jail, they will be going to prison for five years under this anti-terrorism statute that was meant to deal with things um, like the Oklahoma City bombing of 1996, not necessarily prairie grass fires set on federal land. So essentially these protesters, these militants, whatever you want to call them, I mean, their, their central demand is that the Hammonds be released, right? Mm-hmm. And what else well, are they asking for, though? You know, I think that I think everybody knows that that's not going to happen. Um, they, they started off by saying that they wanted the Hammonds to be released. The Hammonds have said now they're going to go to prison. Um, they're going to serve their time. Mm-hmm. There's great concern that Dwight Hammond, who's 74 years old, is going to die in prison. Um, that remains to be seen. Um, the, at this point, you know, the, you have to understand that the Cliven Bundy clan and, and his sons, Ammon, uh, Ryan, and Mel Bundy, are all down there. Um, the Cliven Bundy clan have had generations of uh, animosity and animus towards the federal government and vice versa. Um, this is a family that uh, its, its own family story has been a struggle against uh, government forces, you know, from the earliest days of when, when it began. And became and they became ranches as they as they were pioneers, Mormon pioneers, and so they have this long-standing view. And what they want are two things at this point: they want uh, most federal land that's in the West to be turned over to the United States or from the United States government to the states, and they want the empowerment of sheriffs um, to be able to act as constitutional. They call them constitutional buffers between the federal and and uh, local governments. So if you have a problem with the federal government, you can essentially, what they would like is the Hammonds to be held in escrow, essentially, at the sheriff's office until this thing can be worked out with the federal government. Um, I can almost guarantee you that neither of those things are going to happen. This is a peculiar thing. When you talk about about these lands that, that uh, the Clive and Bundy clan say should be returned, uh, are you talking about public lands like the Bureau of Land Management operates and that the National Forest Service operates? Exactly. So one of the things, for example, with this particular piece of land that they're on, so the, the Malahir National Wildlife uh, Refuge, which is, which is where this is at, was created in 1908 by uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And it was created as a conservation haven for, of all things, bird watchers. This is a, this is a big bird watching area. Lots of geese, lots of waterfowl come, come to that area. It's actually coming over from Canada and, and for the south and, and vice versa, uh, you know, during the change of the seasons. So this area, uh, according to Ammon Bundy, has been taken unconstitutionally. The, the federal government never had the legitimacy to take this land in the first place because it didn't get um, you know, approved by state legislatures. Um, and so he's asking for it to be returned to the states, and that's every single claim that they've made has been this this really constitutionally nebulous uh, claim that the the federal government has no right to these lands which they have in the first place. So, how did the Bundy family get involved in this? I mean, uh, people might remember them from a previous standoff with federal authorities uh, in Nevada. So, how did they get dragged into this? Well, according there. We've heard two different stories. Um, the first is that um, the Bundys just, according to the Hammonds, the Bundys just showed up uh, and kind of started going around. What the Bundys say is that, uh, and this starts to get into the, the, the religious aspect of this, because there is an, a, a very heavy religious aspect to this. The Bundys say that they were called, to, called by God to help the Hammond family out. 
Um, Ammon Bundy has said this in his own uh, in his own words when he first started a militia in uh, so-called militia in uh, in Harney County where this this happened. Um, he gave a very uh, moving and and emotional speech where he says he was he God reached out to him, the good Lord reached out to him and asked him to to help the Hammonds and to take this land. Um, and so. There's this religious aspect of it for the Bundys. They don't just see this as – they see politics and religion in the same vein. There's no difference for them. This is a very devout um, Mormon family. Um, that, that's how they would describe themselves. And they, like many – like, a, like a, in, in this particular strain of Mormonism, which is not a mainstream source um, – uh, strain of Mormonism, which is, is something that the LDS Church does not uh, endorse – they they believe that the lands wherever they they can they should fight for those lands uh, especially in the West and this is a view that's held by by many uh, uh, Mormons in fact some of the people who are responding to this call to come and, and face down the government uh, one of the the gentlemen told us that his name was Captain Moroni which is the name of wow. this historical Mormon figure um, he refused to give his real name so this, this isn't to them this is part of a bigger worldview that while this is happening to one family with the Hammonds. Um, this is something that they've been called to do across the West. But right? these, these aren't local people, then, who are showing up. These aren't Oregonians involved in this. These are people from elsewhere. Um, yes, these, for the most part. I, I can't confirm with you how many Oregonians are in this group, but I can tell you that we've estimated it to be about 20. And I can tell you that I know because there are three Bundy boys and um, two people who have identified themselves as outsiders. So that means at least a quarter of this. Um, are, are not from here, and that the leader uh, of this is not from here, because it's Ammon Bundy, who's from Nevada. How many are there currently hold up in the uh, in the wildlife refuge? We're estimating no more than 20, and that's based on the provisions we've seen go in there. Um, that's based on the people we've been able to count. We can't get a specific head count, and there's a lot of people coming and going. So it fluctuated. Um, earlier, a couple days ago, we were estimating 15. Um, but the, the Bundys and others have said there's, there's as, as, at first, said there was as many as 150 people there. Right. And we see no evidence of that. We, we think it's, it's 20 or less. Okay. Uh, is, is part of the story, too, the militiamen who aren't coming? Are there outspoken militiamen in neighboring states like Idaho and Washington who say that yeah, they're not coming? You know, it's a, I shouldn't say funny, but it is kind of funny. The... So the Bundys posted to Facebook, as one does, um, when a status update happens in their lives, and they they said, all the militiamen in the you know in this area, all the militia in this area, come join us. And a lot, and this is a true quote from Ryan Bundy. I just heard this morning. They all said they RSVP'd. A lot of people said they were going to RSVP, and they were planning on you know hundreds and hundreds of people, 400 and some odd people RSVP'd. Uh, they didn't make it to the to the this this event. And um, apparently the, the Bundys were very upset about that, and that's why they're, they're trying to hunker down um, because they, they're hoping that, you know, when good weather, when better weather happens, that more people will come. Yeah. I should say it's very cold in Burns right now. Um, it gets up to negative 12, which probably is nothing close to what you all have up there, but, you know, <laughs> still, still very cold. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's cold. That's cold. Let's <laughs> let's be clear. Um, okay, so if if it's pretty clear, look, the, the Hammonds are going to jail. They, they've said so. Um, the, the, you know, this land's not going to be turned over to the to these people. Um, does that mean that this just now goes on indefinitely? They, these these guys have said they they intend to stay, maybe even stay for years if they have to. The way it worked with 
with the the showdown at the at the be the standoff at the BLM ranch in uh, Nevada, was the federal government decided that they weren't going to engage, um, that they were going to let folks kind of pound their chests, and they took a bet that eventually things would deflate, and it did. Cliven Bundy uh, had a lot of support up at the front. He was getting support from U.S. senators. He was getting support um, from uh, conservative news outlets here in the United States. And what happened was is he made racist remarks um, about black folks. Um, he called them Negroes, said that they were better um, under slavery, that kind of thing. And what happened is people found the comments so reprehensible that his support cratered. It no longer became a mainstream thing. And once, once that, that media fuel, basically once people stopped paying attention to it, it just kind of died out because it was just a bunch of militiamen sitting there in the desert, um, you know, often in, a, in lawn chairs, uh, kind of waiting for something to happen and nothing would happen. Eventually people went home. There was no fight to be had. I'm told by law enforcement that that is the inclination that they're, they're going to go with this one, um, especially because there's not as many people and especially because there's there's really nothing to threaten. They've taken over uh, a building that, you know, is partially closed for the winter. Um, the staff can telecommute, I'm told. The the, uh, the Bureau of Land Management, uh, another federal building in the area, has been closed. Those folks can telecommute. So there's no great urgency. Nobody's um, threatened. There's no hostage situation. So there's no great urgency for the government to act necessarily, um, you know, and by kind of letting this play out, it's possible that um, you know they can they can end this safely as was what happened with the Bureau of Land Management. I should say there are many critics of this in the United States, especially because um, you know there there are folks on social media rightfully noting that um, people of color in the United States often this isn't the the tactic that's taken with them. Um, they also mention that if if these were Muslim folks, you know people would be very very concerned and upset. Um, the difference here is is that. It really is the jurisdiction, and those other instances, other times, other um, local governments are, are have jurisdiction. Here, the federal government does. Nobody's at threat. There's there's no pressing. Uh, it's not causing any problems with with the economy really or anything like that. There's nothing to to get it to stop right now. So they so they're letting it continue for the time being. And of course, they could be telling us that and planning a raid. Um, which yeah. is something you know what I mean. We yeah. we don't know. Well, I mean, there's there have been headlines that that, that various uh, government agencies are keeping an eye on things. Do we see any ATF or FBI jackets around Burns? We haven't, but um, sources have told me that there will be an FBI command center set up today. Okay. Uh, how is how are the townsfolk taking it? Uh, most of them don't like it. Um, you know, a lot of people are really empathetic with the Hammonds. Um, again, because of the the very harsh sentence, uh, many people out here. I mean, you have to understand this is a, a rural, very rural um, place. There, I, I think uh, the lowest density in the United States. This this particular area, definitely the lowest density in Oregon. Um, and so these people like to be left alone for the most part. That's part of the culture. That's part of the way of life. Um, and so they they generally don't like the federal government to begin with. That being said, uh, they are not into the idea of um, some type of secession which is, at the end of the day, what the Ben Bundys are advocating. And I also think that just as they like to be left alone, there's this idea that we have a bunch of outsiders with guns taking over something that you know our family and friends work at. So there's been a lot of criticism. That being said, there have been some families who have really come to the aid of these, of these men and one woman who are, who are out there and um, have worked really, really hard to bring them food around the clock. Um, you know, kind of serve as lookouts and things like that. But those seem to be one-off families as opposed to the general consensus of the town. 
All right. Well, we'll see how this all plays out. John, uh, appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks for this. Anytime, and thank you so much. Much appreciated. Uh, John uh, Cipollato, as uh, weekend uh, edition host in Oregon uh, Public Broadcasting. I think minus 12. I assume he was talking Fahrenheit. That's uh, when, when things start starting to converge. I mean, it's, uh, it's pretty chilly. Pretty bit brisk Yeah. for those ranching folk. I wouldn't want to be holed up in a building if they turned the power off at this point. But it seems that those guys want a Waco. I mean, they started at the red line. We'll defend, uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll die if we have to. For what? And to get this national forest back yeah. so that people can go mining and grazing in it, as they claim? We'll take a break right here. Continue this chat afterwards. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge. This is News Talk 770. Hi, we're back. Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Uh, There's, you know, the interesting aspect of the story involving the Hammonds anyway, if you feel that they've been uh, hard done by, well, isn't this kind of the the result, the consequence of mandatory minimums? There seemed to be a lot of support for the idea when it was proposed here. But you can see in a situation where maybe there, there's a need for a judge to apply some discretion and not come down so hard on, on maybe people who don't deserve it, that uh, the system becomes bound by the mandatory minimums. So I'm just curious, and if, if you're sympathetic to the Hammonds, whether you're opposed to or have reconsidered previous support for the idea of, of mandatory minimum. There's also this idea, too, that, I mean, should, should laws be applied uh, in places where they weren't intended to be applied? I mean, how how is... Is burning that acre of land uh, an act of terrorism? How should it be construed as an act of terrorism when you're attempting to protect your own land in so doing? I mean, if that statute was devised to, you know, uh, to bring charges against somebody in an Oklahoma uh, building bombing scenario, Oklahoma City bombing scenario, then how does this compare? Well, you know, and again, I mean, Saudi Arabia takes it to the extreme. We talked about earlier when when they use the word terrorist to apply to people who, who certainly aren't. I, I would think we would want to do the same. I, it doesn't sound to me like the Hammonds are terrorists. I'm not even sure that these these um, occupiers, whatever we want to call them, I'm not even sure that it's right to call them terrorists. Um, but a lot of people are. And so maybe we should be careful about being so quick to throw that label around. I mean, clearly these, these people are breaking the law. Uh, they, they don't have a right to take over this building. They don't have a right to make these demands. I mean, clearly they've, they've broken the law here. I, I don't know that I'd call that terrorism per se. I don't understand the social media backlash in here, too, by the way. I mean, John brought it up in our conversation with him about how people say, well, what if these were Muslims or what if these were, were blacks in America that, that had uh, occupied a federal building with arms? I, 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 be careful of this conversation. Are you suggesting that the response should be the same? Because, well, I agree that the treatment is definitely different. These are, at the end of the day, individuals misbehaving and acting kind of uh, irrationally, that they should be killed rather senselessly so that a a greater protest can spring from it doesn't seem like a a reasonable approach to this situation. I think if you'd like to maintain that Tamar Rice should not have been killed because he was playing with a toy gun, he should not have been shot and killed without any questions being asked, I don't think you need an analogy. I think that you can just let that argument stand on its merits. Yeah. Let's go to the phones here. Some time for your calls. Uh, David has called in. Hi, David. Hello. Yes, sir. Two points. Uh, How do you feel when somebody says, I live... Or I'm going to go visit my relatives in Edmonton or Calgary or something like that. When you say Oregon, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. It just really, they know you're a foreigner when you say that. Number two, I have been in local government and I've seen what, uh, uh, when city people start making rules for country people to live by, 
in southern Alberta, we're having a hard time with people dying because they can't get a they can't get a an ambulance to an accident because they're doing it the way it's done in Calgary. Well, it works great in Calgary, but it's different in the boonies. And so I kind of think that local people can uh, take care of their own stuff. So I'm I'm with the Hammonds. Uh, going to extreme like this, I kind of wonder about that. But uh, my, I sure have sympathy for them when they can't farm their ranch to ranch. And when the federal government takes over their irrigation system and floods out Malheur Lake and floods out a whole bunch of farms, uh, I heard about that years and years ago. And then mm-hmm. when it came up on Facebook last night, I read it and I go, oh, that's what the deal is. I don't think that the government should come to Oregon to mess their lives up. The government should stay in Washington and take care of yeah, it does policy seem, yeah. and, and uh, uh, economy and stuff like this. Yeah, David, you make a, life hard for people, and it's going to be hard for people. And what do they care in Washington D.C.? You know? Yeah, I hear you, David. Hey, thanks very much for the phone call. Yeah, we're, we're, we're out of time. We appreciate it. And, How did uh, you say Oregon? 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 Yeah. But then it's okay. a, but the de- the denominum is Oregonian, not Oregonian. Yeah. <laughs> Um, right, I'll work on that. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if I'm entirely aligned with David's perspective, but I certainly think that uh, uh, the government is needlessly causing this issue by having appellate court judges say, hey, we needed actually a stiffer sentence for, for what they did. And is, is the public at great risk, particularly of terrorism, from the Hammonds? I doubt it. Yeah. All right, well, let's take a break here. We'll come back. we got some time for your calls after 1130. We can talk more about this. We've got some other issues to discuss as well. 974-8255. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. All right. Welcome back. I'm Roger. That's Rob. We hope you had a lovely holiday season and things are getting back into full swing for you. I hope they are anyway. Uh, Happy New Year to you. It's going to get cold this week. Yeah. It didn't sound good. Jordan not good. I got to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, you are getting out of here. Yeah, the, the timing. That's just the thing. I feel like I've been overworked. <laughs> so it's time to. Uh, uh, if you're not in on the joke, listen to this World Junior Hockey Tournament when it's in uh, uh, Europe, um, and we get to play the games here on News Talk 770. They they tend to preempt our show, so they did that uh, over the last week. Rob and I worked a, a rock solid one show last week, and boy, oh boy, yeah. it was a gooder. Well, otherwise, yeah, we would have had Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday shows to do, but Tuesday and Thursday we were preempted, and we would have been uh, partially preempted this morning had uh, Canada made it to the semifinals. And alas, as we saw on the weekend, uh, much to our chagrin, our dismay, and what was you know, a pretty exciting game, mind you, as a neutral observer. If you were watching as a neutral observer, you would have you know, been been thrilled by the action, but Canadians were pretty disappointed to, to watch our team go down 6-5 to... to for the host fins. What I like to do is I like to put on a fedora and a black suit with a skinny tie, and I like to watch the game at the bar while I chomp on a short, unlit cigar and blurt out one-liner coaching advice <laughs> in, like, an old-timey accent. Oh, people must love that. Oh, they do. I, I sit at the end of the bar, and I say things like, uh, Yeah, I can't scar from the penalty box. <laughs> I'll say stuff like that. Which is true. It's a team game, not a one-man game. Let's go. Well, a lot of people uh, suggesting that there was uh, some some a lot of selfish players on this team, a lot of uh, undisciplined or immature players on this team. How was it we were taking all of those penalties, really dumb penalties, and from what you know, in some cases, were supposed to be our top guys? That was frustrating, and, and the goaltending too. I think a lot of questions uh, around the, the goaltending. Goaltending wins championships. 
I'll say that a lot it does. when I'm in that character. Hey, Scott Stinson joins us now, sports writer, National Post. Welcome back to the program. Scott, how you doing? I'm good, guys. I do not have a comical accent for you, however. No, that's unfortunate. Hey, listen, all you got to do, though, is, is let me know that I'm correct in all of those uh, hockey assertions I make. Those are bang on. Thanks, buddy. Sure. <laughs> well, you got that Ontario accent going for you, oh, which we appreciate go. out here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, look, I mean... Um, it's not the first time Canada has not won this tournament. It's been a while since Canada, I guess, finished this poorly. But uh, in the grand scheme of things, how, how significant was this? Well, I think the thing with this tournament that you can get roped into doing, which is a mistake, is is looking at the results on a year-by-year basis and saying, hey, we're good, we're bad. And, um, ultimately, this is a tournament that Canada has done pretty well in, even though their only gold medal last year was the first one in, I think, six years. So, you know, on one level you go, well, that was their first, they've had one gold in seven years. That's not very good. On the other hand, they've won their group, I think, six out of the past eight years, which is a better uh, barometer of, you know, overall team play over a, a larger group of games than what happens in the knockout rounds. And they've had some overtime losses. They blew a big lead to Russia a few years ago in a gold medal game. So the sort of larger point I'm trying to get here is that I think it's a mistake to look at any one year and gauge what Hockey Canada is doing based on the results of a single elimination tournament. I mean, it is really just about breaks. And if they hadn't taken those dumb penalties that you guys alluded to uh, in your opening there, you know, they probably are still playing or were still playing today and might have beaten the team that ultimately in Finland that's ultimately playing for the gold tomorrow. So it's it's kind of silly. Hockey's a, a crazy sport that way in terms of bounces and unpredictability of goals. So I think it's a mistake to look at any one year and, and draw sweeping conclusions about it. But having said all that, I think you know if ultimately Canada wants to be dominant at junior hockey, they probably have to recognize that other countries have stepped up their development programs to. Uh, you know, basically churn out more competitive junior teams. And if Canada wants to be serious about always being dominant, which is probably where they should be, then maybe they do need to do, with, make some changes. Oh. The counter to that, just to finish the point, is that, you know, I don't know that anyone really necessarily wants that. Do you want to totally revamp the way things are done in this country just for the benefit of some world junior wins? I don't actually know. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny when you're talking about trends there and to say that, you know, Canada only... You know, worst finish since 1998, sure, uh, only one gold medal in the last seven years. But if you look at the 10-year trend, we've won half the time. Yeah. Right? So how bad are we really? But if you talk about overhauling the developmental program, then what does that look like, understanding that the developmental program appears to be the CHL? Yeah, well, that's the big difference is that Canada is the one country in the world that, that just kind of lets the the system filter, uh, you know, good players out of it, so to speak. Everyone, you know, your kids start at eight years old or seven years old or earlier, and they, the best ones are going to AAA, and the ones who can afford it, you know, go into that program, and then they go up into the higher levels of lower junior ranks, and then eventually they get into junior, and the idea is that these players will, uh, you know, basically be spotted and will be given opportunities through major junior hockey to display their abilities, whereas you look at a country like the United States and they have a national development program that 
identifies those elite players and then puts them on a national development team where they play for two, three years, something like that, amongst, you know, with each other, against teams in the USHL, against men often in that case. So, you know, that's a much different system where they're, they're taking those people and they're saying these people are going to be, like, given the best coaching, incubated, play against each other. We're not going to let them be subject to the vagaries of the junior hockey system, which doesn't necessarily have each individual player's development in mind. You have junior hockey coaches who are trying to win games, and you have 15-year-olds who might be considered good enough to make a major junior team, but then they don't get ice time because the coach doesn't trust them. You know, you see that kind of stuff happen, and is that the best for the development of this particular player? No, but to change it, you'd have to implement a system where the country was essentially taking its best junior prospects out of junior hockey and sheltering them in some sort of national development system, which, you know, might involve games against some of those junior teams or whatever they would come up with. But it would be a big change. And I mean, there's other ways you could change the system, too. You could have more freedom of movement. You could have powerhouse teams within junior hockey levels that are allowed to recruit from a broad, you know, a, a broader swath of the geography. And then you'd have this, you know, monster team that would be full of good players who would in theory develop under the watchful eye of specially chosen coaches or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm just saying there'd be different ways of doing it and there's different ways of doing it in a lot of different countries. And I think in Canada, the big difference is that we've got this massive network that does a lot of things. Obviously, lots of junior teams play, and they make good money, and fans love to go see them. It's not really focused on churning out the best junior prospects, however. And if you want that to happen, then, you know, some changes would have to be made. But again, I get to that point I said before, I don't actually know where everybody really wants that to happen. I don't think so. I mean, clearly the CHL is is a top league. I mean, you know, a lot of American players still come and play in the CHL. A lot of Russian players still come and play in the CHL. Uh, it's still viewed as uh, a, a great stepping stone to the NHL. It is. It's a question, though, of whether, you know, the best kids are, are identified early enough and given better treatment or special coaching. Some of those yeah. Americans, for example, come into the CHL having gone through the U.S. development team for two or three seasons. Uh, Matthew Tchuk, who's playing in the semifinals right now, he was a standout in the development squad before he played for one year. You know, this this is his first year in the CHL and the OHL, and then he's probably going to be drafted and gone. So it's, it's not that the CHL is useless for these players, but it might be certain players are kind of falling through the cracks and maybe going on to a junior team or maybe not even making a junior team uh, at, at the right age when they could be identified and fostered and nurtured and all those different buzzwords uh, at, at different ages. So you mean incentives to, to develop Canadian players. So if I own a, a WHL team, what's the incentive to me to, to put a Canadian kid on that roster versus you know recruiting some hotshot Russian? Yeah, for sure. There is none. <laughs> and and ultimately, those teams and those coaches and those GMs are making decisions to try to win games and try to win the Memorial Cup and, and do the best they can in that system. And Hockey Canada comes in and says, well, we'd like to borrow this player for the World Junior Camp for a month and 
and usually they do do that. But I mean, there's this partnership back and forth between Hockey Canada and the junior leagues where everyone's kind of comfortable with the way it works out. Um, but again, like there's competing interests there. Obviously, the junior teams are trying to win games first and foremost. And as you say, you probably find lots of teams that that rather than develop a Canadian that will give that spot to a Russian. I mean, we see this more and more now where there are Russian teams coming over and taking spots in the CHL teams. And and that's one fewer spot for a Canadian to develop against elite competition when, you know, again, there's no other option. If that kid isn't going into the CHL He's got a lot fewer options in terms of where else he's going to go. He can maybe go play in the NCAA, but the moment he decides to do that, his junior career in Canada is shot. You, you talked about the the American model, where you kind of get put into this elite program. You play in a national development team against. Uh, uh, you don't really have a league that you play in. You're kind of just put together for that purpose. But the player still develops and can still go on to the pro ranks. Sure. Uh, whereas the Canadian model is is obviously this Franken team. We're going to have the coaches and the committee pick from the best players available, and then just hopefully we can find a way to make them gel, turn them into a gold medal team. Who else does it the Canadian way? Well, other teams do, a lot of the European teams do sort of a version of uh, what the U.S. do. They'll have a development team uh, that plays together for a number of years when they're teens. But then what they'll do is is some of the players in, say, Sweden and Finland, they'll play in the Swedish Elite League or the Finnish Elite League, you know, even at 16 to 17, they'll be playing against men, essentially, in, in uh, that upper league there. So they won't necessarily, I mean, I think they see it as they might get to a point where that kid has no more to learn from playing amongst other 16-year-olds on a team Sweden, so they'll accelerate them into the the elite league, and that's where they develop that way. Um, even a country like I remember when I covered the World Juniors last year, Slovakia has a, a, a version of what you'd call a national development team where they put a team full of uh, teenagers and they play them in what is the Slovakian Elite League, which is probably not that elite. All things considered. And it went bronze but, last year, Scott. That's true. <laughs> Tired I, of I you always coming on this radio station saying bad things about the Slovakian <laughs> hockey program. I shouldn't be shouldn't be slandering their <laughs> success last year. But yeah, I mean, other the, the bottom line is other countries have to figure out a way to do it because they don't have this massive junior network that Canada has, and. You know, I guess the question is, is the existing infrastructure that that is in Canada, is that really the best thing for turning out a national program? I don't know that it is, but I don't know that it would be easy to, as I said, sort of overhaul it, because it does serve all these other purposes that in other countries it's not. Nobody's complaining because they decided to hothouse a bunch of Slovakian teenagers on the team. They're not saying, oh, you've now kept that guy away from the insert name of Slovakian junior team here. Uh, I'm, I'm going to like screw up a geograph- geographical reference. Here's my thing, though, Scott. I, look, we, we, Canada is still churning out uh, a lot of elite players, and, and you could look at the, the U20 eligible kids in the NHL who didn't play at this tournament. We could have had quite a team. What, what concerns me is whether we're developing goaltenders as well as as we could be in this country. Like, Finland seems like a country that disproportionately generates a lot of top-notch goaltenders. For 
sure. I mean, Finland, Sweden. Uh, goalies is a, is a funny one because I don't know what the explanation is for you know why the the you know whether the Canadian goalie obviously Carey Price has proved himself to be an exception to that rule. And there's other Canadians, of course, who play in the NHL. But, mm-hmm. you know, it, long long gone are the days where Canada had six of the seven best goalies in the NHL. Well, they were all from Quebec, too. <laughs> well, that's true, too. And, and even that sort of pipeline has been, you know, is slowed to a trickle, I guess, for lack of a better word. But the funny thing is, like, I think the thing we sometimes forget about, you know, Canada's success in these tournaments, and even including the Olympics and the World Championships, is just how much of a numerical advantage Canada should have over some of these other countries. I mean, I I believe this is sort of off the top of my head, but I think there's something like 500,000 registered junior hockey players in Canada, and there's something like 40,000 in Sweden, and there's something like 38,000 in Finland. Like, it is a tremendous disparity in the, in the hockey-playing public from here to over there. So it's all the more remarkable that you could have, you know, just as good or better goalie prospects coming from these tiny nations. I mean, it's a it's kind of bizarre in that sense. And and maybe that has something to do with elite athleticism, you know, can't be developed at a, to a certain extent and that it's, some of it has to be genes and whatever else. But that's where I think you sort of go, when you look at that, when you take that into account, you go, well, maybe maybe we should be doing better than just, you know, Kind of contending for medals most most years and and being thinking of ourselves as as good when we win the occasional gold. Um, I wonder if sometimes we don't we're getting away from recognizing that we should be like the U.S. in basketball, where they are expected to win every year and every tournament. And we kind of got away from that. And I wonder if some of that explains why we get a little complacent when. Uh, you know, we win something and we go, great, good for them. And, I mean, I hate to say it around the juniors specifically because these are just teenagers. I mean, crazy yeah, exactly. happens, yeah. right? Like, yeah. that's not, again, I don't want to sound like I'm beating on the this particular team for not winning because, hey, it happens. And you have bad years and it's a single knockout tournament and such is life. But uh, you do wonder if sort of a broader, bigger picture look at the thing would cause uh, Canadian officials to go, hey, we could be doing things differently but we don't because, you know, this is the way it's always been done. Yeah. Right. Well, All right, Scott, Scott yeah. yeah. We'll leave it there, nationalpost.com, and uh, it's now 1-1, U.S.-Russia uh, in the second period in that uh, semifinal. I really look forward one day, Scott, to you and me taking in a, an H.C. Kosice game in that Slovak Extra Liga. <laughs> Look that up. Right? No, <laughs> come on, man. After, well, well after, after Palfi left the Kings, I followed his career overseas, you see. <laughs> I'm sure that would be a fun place to watch a game. Hey, take right. care, Scott. Happy All to right, see you guys. Uh, it's Scott Stinson, uh, sports columnist for the National Post, nationalpost.com. What are those teams again? What, what's that? <laughs> How dare he? H.C. Kosice. Yes. How, how dare he suggest I don't have intimate knowledge of the Slovak oh, extra I, I know. You go on about it every morning. Every it's, morning. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, we've got to take one more break. You're back to wrap things up right after this. All right, a lot of texts coming in, 77770. I, I think this one's interesting. Uh, this one talks about uh, trading methods, but also a strong commitment to skill development long before systems are stressed. Oh, two one Russia now. By the way, yeah, that semifinal powered one. Do we? You know, and I got kids in hockey, and you see it that you know even by the time they're seven years old, you start to pitch and hold kids into certain positions. 
And, you know, I just wonder if you allow kids, because, you know, maybe there's a kid who would be a, an amazing goalie, but by the time he's seven or eight, you've pitched that kid as a defenseman. Yeah, right. And he never gets a chance to, to explore that. And, and I'm, maybe they, they do more of that in, in other countries where, you know, kids get a chance to experiment and see what they're good at and play all kinds of different positions. And, you know, whereas, you know, we, we do get into those systems and you start teaching kids those positions and only those positions at, at a young age. Having never played hockey, uh, do you have to, to get kids so system-oriented early on? Or with great skills and game awareness, can you not just explain a system and have them Im- implement it? And I say it like this. I mean, by the time you get to the NHL, if you get traded, right, you get traded to a different team with different coaching and different systems, but you are still an elite player who can adapt and translate, right? So I don't know why you couldn't just have the the 20, what is it, 25 most skill-developed players and say, okay, guys, here's the system we're going to play with. I look at how the Canadian hockey team won uh, Olympic gold in Sochi. They played with absolute humility. Sidney Crosby's post-game interview, he said, yeah, with this roster that we brought here, it'd be easy for us to go to the net. But no, we had a plan and we stuck to it and no one ever had a chance. Well, and you mentioned the Olympics. Don't forget, 1998, we didn't win. 2006, the the Winter Olympics, and we crashed out in like uh, six or seven plays. Bad year. So we've gone, we've had this angst before. Uh, to, we bounce back, and I'm sure we'll bounce back here, and we'll have a tournament at some point in the future where we don't do well, and we'll have this whole uh, national naval gazing once again. All right, we well, are done for the day. We'll catch you tomorrow, same time, same place. This has been Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.